Hey guys, I'm Nick. And I'm Eugene. Welcome to Papercut. This week we'll be discussing Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. This book, well, it's a lot of things, but I think one of the main things I want to bring up first is it's written by a Nobel Prize winning economist and it tries to condense his lifetime's his lifetime's worth of work into a few hundred pages, which is an incredible feat to do. And he is very influential in circles, still alive. And so, and I thought it's a very interesting book to play up, bring up, because he is by trade a psychologist. And it's quite important to bring this up as well, because you know, when I read some pop science books, and I, I really like them, they reference his work a lot. They don't reference this book particularly, but they reference his work. And so, it's I'm quite happy to talk about this sort of stuff that he mentions. So let me quickly run through like what this means, thinking fast and slow. So in his book, in his work, he Daniel Kahneman references two systems in your brain, a system one and a system two. Yeah, he's naming Just like, just like uh, our ghosty toilet, you know. Yeah, yeah. System, system one, one and system two. Hmm. I mean, there is... Oh, I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but naming aside, it's it's a very simple concept almost. So system one is that quick, impulsive, uh, almost very fast part of the brain that knows how to react almost instantaneously to basic thought. So for example, if I asked you like one plus one, you'd probably be able to tell me two. If I asked you for the capital of England, you'd be like, oh yeah, London. Stuff like that, really fast, really quick stuff, almost second nature mm-hmm. instinct. System two is that slower, more rational part of the brain that handles complex computation. So, for example, if I asked you, like, 37 times 23, now, Eugene, I'm not a, I'm not a maths genius, so I can't give you that straight off the bat. I'll need some time, but... Oh, I know it's 2,113. Yeah, no, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's no, not. no, it's not. It's not, you it's tried. Not. It's not, you tried. <laughs> that was quick, though. It was quick. It was quick. That it was, was wrong. Impulsive. <laughs> it was system one, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's still wrong. <laughs> okay, uh, or something like, you know, parking into a very tight parking spot. Now, obviously, like, I guess the next thing to say is some things from System 2 can feed into System 1. Mm-hmm. So, like, though you can start off with something. You might not know what you're doing, but if you do it enough, it gets to System 1. A good example of this would be chess players. So, let me ask you this, right? When you look at... They did this experiment, and they took a chess grandmaster and a chess newbie, and they monitored their brains, okay? Uh-huh. Which brain do you think fired more? So which brain do you think was working harder? I want to say the chess master, but actually when I think about it, right? The chess master would just know what to do, right? Exactly. So it would actually be, it would actually be the, 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 the noob, the it, newbie. Yeah, the newbie. And you're completely right. Like, that's what they found. The chess master, they, their firing patterns have just gotten, you know, efficient. They know the best moves already. They know everything because they've seen it all before. Whereas the chess newbie is thinking, can I do this? What if I do that? What if I do this? And they're only thinking like, maybe two steps ahead. And so it's the same thing. Like once you get good at something, system two can jump into system one. Mm-hmm. And that's what his, this book focuses on. And in terms of the book, I really enjoyed it because I it's influenced a lot of pop science and just psychology in general. And it's one of those things where it's worth noting that he's a lecturer, Daniel Kahneman, and so he knows that if you just simply tell people non-stop what to do, what to think, they're gonna, you're going to lose their interest. And so throughout his entire book, he litters it with questions, like, and then they're not like insanely hard questions, but they are questions that make you think and go, ah, I should have known that. 
because he knows that the only way to get you to get engaged is to show you that you were wrong in one way or maybe your thinking didn't lead you to where you thought you were going and try and show you a different paradigm which is very powerful storytelling in itself Mm -hmm. i like that part of it but i will say this i feel like in his book he splits into five parts but for me for me i felt like it was split into three parts the first part being the most interesting the second part being (laughs) okay and the third part being a a slug to read to read through and you i really did feel that at the end by the third the the third uh final part i was like can we just can we just get through this now we're so close to the end i might as well finish it and yeah so what did it start off being interesting and then yeah because i thought i think the beginning parts were the parts that were paradigm destroying oh okay so you have this idea in your head and then he kind of comes in and shows you actually you are wrong here here and here and this is why and you know it's that it's that good one it's not like in your face you're wrong it's more like oh it's a gentle oh yeah this is the better way to think about it okay so and you have that whereas in the final part you it couldn't really live up to the first part I guess so I guess otherwise he would have to break his own paradigm oh my god (laughs) go full circle yeah go full Stephen Hawking (laughs) go full Stephen Hawking but yeah, that's that's the thing. Like, you, it's, it was really hard to live up to the first half of his book. I don't want to go into that. Some people might have enjoyed it, but that's how I felt about it. But and I do have some ideas in the book that I really want to talk about. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Mark, Eugene, my first question to you is, you haven't book, read the book, have you? I have never heard the book until about two hours ago. Ah, okay, wonderful. <laughs> I think one of the main reasons I picked it up was because it was like um, I saw this penguin cover on it and it was in all the bookstores I've seen I went to oh. that's like and I saw and I went, okay like it's penguin, interesting like uh, publishing house co- oh yeah, yeah okay yeah and I thought okay it's interesting and I kept going back and I kept seeing that book on like, all the bestsellers list so anyway that's just a little little sidetrack but here's a question for you Eugene what is the point of thinking for me, I would say is to make sense of stuff, to be able to go through the path of logic mm. and reach the conclusion. I mean, there's no, def- there's no, there is a definite Oxford answer to it, but that, that wasn't what I was aiming for. Mm-hmm. But I definitely see your point. Like you're trying to make sense of things. My fa- my favorite definition is the whole point of thinking is so that you don't have to think. Because if you think about yeah. it, like thinking is a very taxing activity. Well, when you do it correctly. And even if you do it incorrectly, it's still very taxing. You have to use your brain, you have to explain and logic your way through a lot of things. The whole point of thinking in the system two sense is to try and not to use system two when you don't have to. Yeah. So it's almost by design that our system two wants to shove everything to system one if it can. How he structures this book was he starts off with like a few statistic things. So he shows some statistics and how we can sometimes misinterpret them. And then he goes into how our system one fails us so i don't know you but i was taught in school about statistics and Mm -hmm. i personally just took it at face value in that i looked at the statistics course i said okay learn about this just apply into the exam and that's it just math right it's just math just math what's your question what's the average of this you plug it in you get three marks and then you repeat that for like you know 60 times and you suddenly you get 100 yeah that's precisely it. Yeah. So I never really thought about the implications of certain things until so this book came up with a few ideas that changed the notion of how I thought of things. And one of one I really wanted to share was this one about reward and punishment. So let me ask you this. 
Do you think people learn better through reward or punishment? So, for example, if I wanted you to do a task, okay, let's say flying a plane. I gave you the training. I recorded your performance. You are now an average pilot. Mm-hmm. And I want you to run this course now. Okay. Do you think you would perform better with reward as in positive like re- reinforcement? Or do you think you would do better if someone said, oh, you were shit at this, you were bad at that? Which, do you, which one do you think is better? Well, I know in the military they do negative reinforcement. Which one do you think is better? I want to say positive, but I feel like it's negative. Okay. So they've tested this. And the reason I bring up pilots in particular is because Daniel Kahneman, he worked with the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, for a while. Uh-huh. And when he was doing this, he found that he asked this, he asked his, um, he, sh- he showed his workings to people. And his work said very clearly, actually, he said positive reinforcement help because mm-hmm. um, of something. But the examples he gave as well, and we've done further su- uh, studies to this. They've done it with classes where students with um, students who were given positive reinforcement perform better than those who were punished for every mistake they made, and they were willing to work harder. Oh okay. uh, yeah, so I think I've heard that as well actually. And not only that, it's also and it's not just psychological. So as what happened in another group of rugby players was. A group, half, this group was split into half. Half of them were shown their highlight reels. The other half were shown their blooper reels. The highlight reel group, were, they were told to, that they were really good, given loads of positive feedback. And the other group was, were just told they were crap. They were like, you shit, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have done that, blah, blah, blah. And they found that the group with the, the, that got shown the highlight reels performed a lot better afterwards than the blooper reel. Mm-hmm. And it's not even just psychological, because you can even see it. They also tested the blood. Uh, of both groups and they found that the group with the highlight reel actually had higher testosterone okay so Daniel Kahneman presented similar studies to the generals and the generals stared at him and went you're lying to me uh, because I have this pilot he was crap when he performed and I told him that and the next one he did really well and that was so like you said just now the military would be in agreement with you like negative punishment negative uh, punish what you don't want to see yeah and th- this is when he said, this is the perfect example of regression to the mean. Would you mind expanding a bit on that? Sure. So regression to the mean. So when we talk about the mean, we're talking about the average performance. So mm-hmm. let's say you're supposed to fly, let's say you're supposed to fly into like rings of something like that, or do a few tricks in the sky. You have your indicators and you're meant, you know the average of it. And if you can do more of them, you get a higher score. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what most people found was that you have a mean, like no matter who you are, you always have an average at some point in time. And what most likely happened was it was probably a bad day for one of those pilots. And those pilots probably performed really badly. And so that pulled them down from what it would normally be. So even if you scolded them, even if you told them they did really well, the next time they would have gone back up to the the mean, is what I'm saying. So it will always regress to the mean. So when you think about it, for example, let's say you were doing, you were averaging like, I don't know, 90% for all your maths tests or something like that. And all of a sudden, you gain 90, 90, 90. All of a sudden, one test, you get 50. And your your teacher plows you in, like really destroys you down. And then the next, next, next one, you go back to 90. Pro- most likely because you're regressing to the mean, your average mark, as opposed to the teacher actually giving you a shelling, if that makes sense. Mm. So that's the I- that's one of the ideas that 
I was taught in school, but I never really expanded, extended it to think of it in this way. I don't know. I feel like those are edge cases, like as in, from what you've said, like having someone perform at a average and then suddenly go really low, and as at that time when he gets scolded, like he gets his ass handed to him. Mm-hmm. Is that what a general's meant? Like, is is that? Is that what actually had happened? Because like, I feel like what the generals meant was that, you know, this guy was bad throughout. Not he was bad this one time. And then after I gave him a handing, he's gone back up, like substantially compared to before. No, I think it, I think he really was like, because you know if someone's really bad, like, because you're always working with reference points in your head, aren't you? Yeah. So if I know that my, this pilot, he, I, I knew that he was on an improving track and he just suddenly messed up one day, I would know that, and I scolded him and he did better, I would attribute it to the scolding. And if I knew that they were bad all along, I probably wouldn't have them on my team, you know? Yeah, but true. You, you do have base standards to these things and it could be just that day they were falling behind. So you're saying we don't notice it when they are when they are performing average, it's only when they're shit that we go, oh, oh wow, what, what, what has, what's happening here? I think it's one of those things where it's, it's a, if it's a service, especially in the fields of service, it's one of those things where if it's good, you won't notice it. If it's bad, you will notice it. Yeah. Same with music, same with movies. If it's bad, you notice it. I guess, I guess we get this impression because we always see clips of like people in the military getting shouted at or like... I'm, I'm sure that happens too. I'm sure <laughs> oh, yeah, that happens. Yeah, it happens, but it's like, maybe like it gets, um, it gets exaggerated a because, mm. um, you know, Full Metal Jacket, for example. Oh my God. <laughs> exactly. One of the points he brought up, which I thought was quite interesting, was sort of the case of extreme emotion as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how this will fly in some circles, but he mentioned that, you know, if you're depressed, don't worry too much about it because depression is an extreme feeling it is an extreme it's an extreme state you will regress to the normal now some people will look at that and go no it's 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 medical there are so many factors to it which is true but to me i look a bit more optimistically and go hey there is always light at the end of the tunnel like you will come back to the normal state that's how i like to look at it but this is just a sidetrack it's not it wasn't like the crux of his book or anything so yeah, so so what he's saying is like if things seem bad in your life, it's because they're worse than what they normally are. Exactly. And so by definition, because your life's average is better than what it is now, it mm. will go back to what it is before. Exactly. Okay. Well, hopefully, assuming there's nothing else. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But yeah. Okay. I think that you got the point. There are other interesting bits as well. So I'll, I'll touch on this one very briefly because I thought it's interesting to talk about, but I don't want to expand on it too much because I can't do too much justice to it. Have you ever heard of the law of small numbers? Can't say I know it well. Okay, let's take the reverse of it. So central limit theorem. Oh, yeah, yeah. So okay. central limit theorem is a thing that says that if you have a sample from a population and you know its standard deviation and its mean, if the sample is big enough, uh, it will, it will no- approximate to a normal distribution. And so that is the case where the number gets very, very big. So if I pick very many people, you will find this distribution. So a lot of uh, small numbers in my mind is basically the reverse of this. What happens if I pick very, very small numbers of people instead? Then it won't be, they'll it, be skewed, right? It'll be very skewed. Yeah. And that's exactly what they find as well. And I don't think I'm expressing this point really well, but the point he was trying to drive at is, for example, if you want to say something like all red hairs, all red-headed people are really pale, 
and you only had like five people to show for that. It doesn't really prove your point. So let me show you, let me give you a, a, a better thought experiment. Let's talk about hospitals and babies, okay? So assuming that boys and girls are born more or less 50-50 across the world at any given time, which hospital would give you on any particular day more boys than girls being born? A bigger hospital or a smaller hospital? Smaller. Why? Because there's less variation. Yeah. I mean, right? yeah. yeah, less variation. And like you're focusing on like small amounts of people as well. And the point he was trying to drive here wasn't like some statistical trick. It was more like these are in our lives, we work with small samples. We, we work with a finite number of people. Mm-hmm. And it's these samples that we see. And we normally extrapolate from these small samples to the entire distribution. Mm-hmm. And that's where the trouble comes in. And so he goes on in his book to talk about heuristics. And I, I, maybe I'm just stupid, but for the longest time, I had no idea what a heuristic was. And then someone just told me, it's just the model. It's just a simple model in your brain. Mate, I actually didn't even fully understand it just now. <laughs> I mean, now you know, it's just a simple model. Cause I remember hearing it a lot in the, in the lectures that we had. Oh my God. And just just like, like heuristic model, heuristically thinking. I'm just like, what? Can you just explain what that means, please? <laughs> I, I'm so glad I'm not the only one. Yeah, no, that's exactly that's how probably I like felt. Of the class. Oh my God. But now you know, it's yeah. just a simple model. That's all it is. And so here's some, here's some um, tricks that our system one brain falls into. So I'll start uh, the first one, okay? Here's a question for you. I want, to, I want you to guess how old Gandhi was when he got assassinated, okay? Yeah, he got assassinated? Yeah. Huh? No, <laughs> I'll give you some reference points of other people who got assassinated. So JFK, Kennedy, 46 years old when he got assassinated. Lincoln, 56 years old. Martin Luther King... 39 years old. Uh-huh. Not assassinated, but oh, got shot anyway. Alexander Hamilton, 49 years old. How old do you think Gandhi was when he was was, was assassinated? I thought he was like 60-something, or like 50 to 60. I forgot what the exact age was, but I remember he was quite old. 78 years old. Oh, okay. Okay. And um, I don't know, maybe... Maybe it's this might not be my most brilliant example, but I like to think that what I did there was something called anchoring where I try to bring your thoughts uh, I try to skew your idea down a bit by giving you fairly young people yeah I mean like if I didn't know if I didn't know at all Mm. that when he got assassinated he was old I would have been like I would guess the average of those numbers which is probably what you wanted me to say right something along those lines but I mean even when you knew he was old you probably if I gave you like older people you might but yeah I would have said like you know 80 or 90 but exactly but here's the scary thing Okay, so they did this experiment. I don't know if it was Daniel Kahneman that did it, but they gave the um, people an experiment of um, people guessing the amount of money in an envelope. You ever played that game? So what you do is like you have people writing a number, uh, writing a number between like one to a thousand, something like that, and this amount goes into this envelope, and the sum of that envelope is is uh, is a secret to everybody okay and the whole and the game aim of the game is everyone in the room to guess how much is in that is in the envelope how much you can write arbitrarily any, any number you want yeah a one to like a thousand or something like okay. that so you know i mean you know that you know the upper limit you know the lower limit and so the the next step was they the first before they were asked to make their guess they were asked to put the last four numbers of their social security numbers down 
So they did that with that one group. Another group they were just told without the social security number, and there was a control group. I forgot what they did, and social. I think what they found was that people who wrote their social security numbers down, their guesses were closer to the social security numbers than they were to the actual numbers in the envelope, or something along those lines. What do you mean closer to the social security number? So it, let's say let's say the total amount of money in, in the envelope is nine 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 nine, for example. And let's say my social security number is one two three four. What they found was people weren't using like their brains to figure out what other people might have placed in. They were just looking at their security numbers and going, "Okay, my number is one two three four. I'm gonna guess it's one four five six." Oh, okay. Right. For example, and I thought it was very interesting because even you can anchor it to such weird things as well. What does your social security number has yeah. zero correlation to? Even if you know, that. even if you know consciously that you know it, it doesn't have anything to do. With what you put down, you still somehow get your mind screwed towards that. Like even even if it's like completely irrational, right? Exactly. I mean, this is that this is a shortcoming of that sort of system one way of thinking. Mm. Um, here's another one. I'm I'm jumping to another heuristic now. Um, availability. So we judge events based on how easy it is to get information about it. So a good example would be if I say this. What's the first? Person, what's the first image that comes into your mind when I say slavery?、Um, Lincoln. Okay, fair enough. But you, I mean, you think of the Atlantic slave trade, right? Yeah. Whereas, yeah, Atlantic slave trade. I think we mentioned a few episodes ago was less than half of the entire global slave trade in like the worst days. Like the Middle East had it worst. The original word slave come from Slavic people. We、mm-hmm. talked about that. Like these won't cross your mind, but the fact is, it's so prevalent that's the first thing you jumps to mind. Right, like the whole Atlantic slave trade. I mean, you you mentioned Lincoln, but I'm I'm just gonna assume. Yeah, yeah. That. Basically, that's basically all I was saying, right? Exactly. And if I asked you, like,、um, when when I think of when I ask people about sharks and shark attacks and shark deaths, my parents do this all the time. They go, "Be careful with the sharks." The, what they don't understand is I'm more likely to die from a vending machine falling on me, or what's the other one,、uh, a car crash. Yeah. But they don't. They never say, "Watch out for that vending machine." Watch out for that car. I mean, they say, "Watch out for that car," but never that vending machine.、Mm. Okay, here's another one that I is somewhat linked to the availability one as well. It's called the representation heuristic. You're assessing similarities and organizing them by like a prototype. So here's an example for you. I'm going to describe three women, and I want you to guess which of these three is most likely to be Christian. So we have Alice, who is a school teacher. Betty is a school teacher who helps charity drives out, and she donates money to UNICEF quite often.、Mm-hmm. Three, Charlotte is a school teacher who is good friends with a well-known pastor in an area and and re- frequents a cafe near the church.、Um, second one. So you think Betty is most likely to be Christian? Yeah. Okay. How come? Because charity work. Well, being friends with a pastor doesn't really say anything about your religious faith. You just happen to be friends with someone who is a pastor,、mm. like cafe near a church, good cafe.、Mm-hmm. I don't know. Doesn't got any, hasn't got anything to do with the church, you know. Okay. I live near a church. Doesn't make me a Christian. All right. Let me ask you this: Are there more school teachers, or are there more school teachers who help out in charity drives? School teachers. Right. So. Let me ask you this: Are there? Is it more like so? We have a bigger number of school teachers, right? Than a bigger number of t-、uh, school teachers who help on charity drives.、Uh-huh. So by logic, if you have more school, you need to. If you have more school teachers, you will also have school teachers who don't help on charity drives, but who also identify as Christian, right? Yeah. 
So by that logic, because they were all school teachers, the others were like additional points. So their pools are smaller. It's more likely that the school teacher, just Alice, is more likely to be pushed uh, in all of them. Because it's just a bigger pool of them. Statistically. Statistically speaking. Okay. I mean, yeah, because you, know, you just have more... It's just a bigger pool. That's all it is. And what happens here is that we don't think we do. We think in stories. Like humans are very uh, story-driven animals, and so we like to think that because this person does X, Y, Z, he's more likely to do this. It's much easier to believe that like um, a Christian would do like you know charity things rather than just being like yeah, show doesn't do like just a position. It's much easier to think of it with when there's a story involved. And there are further stories to this, but I can't call it off the top of my head. I think that was an okay. interesting example. To I think I think that illustrates the point pretty well. So these are just some of the examples I wanted to bring up. And of course, he touches on things like loss aversion and optimism as well. So you look at losses and people assume losses. It's much easier to accept $50 than to lose $50, if that makes sense. We see that loss of $50 far worse than gaining 50 Yeah. You, you feel that, right? Like, you feel like if you lost $50... Mate, I feel I've lose 50 cents. I'm like, <laughs> give me my money back. Exactly. And I mean, optimism as well. Like, there is, there's a part where he talks about how sometimes we're a bit too optimistic, but I don't want to go into that right now in the interest of time. But, I mean, these are some of the things that, I, that he talked about that I thought was quite interesting. Okay. And in the end, he has this very poignant point. And I always talk about that third part as being very boring. And for the most part, it was... But there was one part that I would like to share, and it's a part about focus. And so he's saying that, you know, human beings, we're not perfect, but the one thing that we can control in our lives is our ability to focus on something. For me, I look at that and I went, you know, it's good to focus on the good things that happen in life because, you know, there's a lot of shit that happens. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's that ability to focus and draw on those good things that make it much easier to pass by. And it links in very, uh, to a nice a quote that he says very nicely. Nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you're thinking about it. Like, you think you're in a really shit situation, oh, but yeah. in reality, it's like it's not never really that bad. In a grand scheme of things, right? <laughs> in the grand it's, scheme. It's, something is as important as it is only when you make it to be. Like, you give, you give value to whatever what? you see. It exactly. doesn't come with value. And also, like, I suppose when, you, when you're in the heat of the moment... You feel like, shoot, this is the only thing that matters to yeah. me. But in reality, like, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. And then vice versa, there are some decisions that you make where you go like, you don't think much about it, but they actually end up being very significant. I, I haven't found any of these this in my life yet, but maybe when I look back at hard You're enough... You're still young. Maybe when I look back hard enough, I'll find it and I go like, oh God, it was there all along. <laughs> Just need to look harder. If only I knew, right? If only I knew. Uh, then I'll need to uh, tenant this. Oh my god, don't mention that. <laughs> Sorry, tenant was a... Why did I say that name? Why did you say that name? It was an interesting movie, to say the least. My main takeaway from this book is it's good to know the shortcomings of your ways of thinking. Because the brain is an amazing device. He doesn't say it's shit. He doesn't say System 1 is crap or anything. In fact, he thinks it's amazing that mm-hmm. it's even a thing. But it needs to be kept in check. It needs to be constantly updated, right? It needs to be updated. It's a model. It's a heuristic. It yeah. needs to be up. And the best models are not necessarily the ones that are uh, right all the time. It's the ones that are wrong but can be easily updated. That's how I would view it. In the scheme of things, would I say 
read it. I'd say if you have read other pop science books or books about economics or behavioral economics, I'd say this one is a good one to read if you've read those because I really think that after you've read this, you don't really have to read the others. This is like, to me, this is kind of like the OG one where like all the other books kind of draw from this in one way or another. Mm, okay. Um, is it hard to understand though? Like the wordings that he used or like the the way he presents his arguments? Nah, he's very 21st century. Okay. So he, will, he knows how to speak. He knows how to speak properly. He's not poetic. He's not too poetic when he doesn't need to be. Okay. Okay. That's good. Yeah. Um, I would recommend it. Uh, I wouldn't say you must die to read it, but definitely worth your time if you have it. All right. So you don't have to shove this in your list. <laughs> all right, guys. That's all we have for today. Thank you for listening in. If you like what we do, follow us on Spotify. Just type in Paper Cut Podcast in your search bar or in any of your other preferred streaming sites. If you want to leave us a comment or let us know what you think, you can email us at papercut.cast at gmail.com or Instagram at papercut.cast, no caps. Or Twitter at papercutpodcast, one word, no caps. Look forward to seeing you guys next week for another episode. Until then, I'm Nick. And I'm Eugene. Peace out.